Father, we do leave everything to you. We know that everything in this world, even the greatest of all evils, the murder of your son, was ordained by you to bring about your glory and our benefit. And so, Lord, even in our own lives, in a much smaller way, you allow things, you bring things into our lives so that, Lord, you would be glorified in us. Lord, may we do that. May we see life in this way. May we interpret history and everything that goes on in our lives as a a way of making us stronger in Christ and truly good, even though sometimes they're very painful. Lord, I think about these disciples as they began to experience a first-hand experience, a first-row seat of watching the arrest, the plot, the arrest, the trial, and the death of the Son of God. And Lord, how desperate they must have felt, how hard it must have been to see their Savior go to the cross. And yet, Lord, it was all part of your magnificent plan to save humanity. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of disciple, the good disciple that we're going to see here today worships you and loves you and celebrates you, even in the midst of hardship and pain. Help us do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm so thankful we can be here together and enjoy this blessing that gathering and singing and fellowshipping with one another. People have bled and died for this privilege, and we ought not squander it on Christian entertainment, but we should seek to know and obey the, and proclaim the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we've come a long way in our study of the book of Matthew. I was looking this week, and I realized I preached over 150 sermons from this book, and the first thought I had when I thought of that was, oh, you poor people. (laughs) It has been an immense blessing to me. I hope it's been an immense blessing to you. I was reflecting on this because chapter 26, where we are today, represents the final, final and monumental turn In Matthew's Gospel, the very first verse, Matthew said, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, I don't think Matthew is merely talking about the Olivet Discourse, the last two chapters. I think Matthew is talking about all five speeches, all five discourses that make up really the structure of the Gospel of Matthew, the life and ministry of Jesus. It's coming to its consummation. Matthew is going to focus on now is the capstone, the the crowning event of Jesus' ministry, His death and resurrection. Well, with God's smiling providence, we will find our way to the story of the resurrection, hopefully this next Resurrection Sunday, next spring, about 24 Sundays from right now. Until then, we will give our time on the Lord's Day, each Lord's Day, to study the plot, the arrest, the trial, and then the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Matthew starts with the plot, a wicked plot, a vile plot. Truly, it was a satanic plot, but a plot which was ordained by God to provide salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the plot, we hear of 
two disciples. That's why I've entitled this message, A Tale of Two Disciples. One disciple was a leading apostle. He was in the inner circle. He was a trusted man, one of the twelve whom Jesus had chosen. His name was Judas. You learn that this man, for a price of a few bucks, was willing to betray Jesus and deny the faith. The other disciple, not in the inner twelve, it's not even clear who she was. Other Gospels tell us it was Mary, but there's a lot of Marys. Not exactly sure which one it is, 100%. We will learn today about her understanding, her dedication, her belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Anointed One, and her worship of Him. As Matthew gives us this unveils for us this nefarious plot. So, let's turn together, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 26, and I want to read to you the first 16 verses, follow along as I read aloud. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, "'You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified.'" And the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to Him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on His head as He reclined at the table And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the Word of God. Thirty pieces of silver in today's money is worth somewhere between $97 and $444, depending on which scholar you read and what kind of coin they think was used or was referred to here and the value of things now as they were compared to back then. Not as much as you might have imagined $440, not really that much money, especially in America today. Thirty pieces of silver, incidentally, was the old covenant amount you had to pay someone if your ox accidentally killed their servant. One of the Old Testament prophets was named Zechariah. In his prophecy, he mentioned this concept, this old covenant concept of, of payment as he wrote about and prophesied about how uh, the people of Israel would reject God. 
Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he predicted not only would Israel reject God, be taken into captivity again later on, but they would eventually get around to rejecting the Son of God. And he gives this prediction, he gives this prophecy with an illustration of a shepherd, a a coming shepherd who would come to Israel. Of course, this is a picture of none other than Jesus Christ, this Messiah. The shepherd would come to the people of Israel, and he gave three illustrations of how the people of Israel would reject this shepherd. The first illustration pictured that the shepherd, when he would come, he would find out that he would be in direct conflict with three false shepherds, and he would have to get rid of these three false shepherds. The Jews called three groups of people shepherds back then. It was the elders, the scribes, and the chief priests. Some of you remember this from when we studied this in our Bible study class. Of course, sure enough, Jesus came. He was in direct conflict with this very group of people, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, many of whom were Sadducees, many of whom were Pharisees. Jesus undermined their authority, and then after Israel had rejected Jesus, the Romans came in, destroyed Israel, and those offices have never been restored since that time. The second illustration that Zechariah gave about this shepherd is that he breaks his two staves or staffs, if you're like me. No one says staves, do they? He has two staffs or staves, and he breaks them both. One staff is named favor. One staff is named union. The favor was the favor that the law would bring. If they were to obey the law, God promised favor. The other staff, union, represents the union between the people of Israel and also union with God. And so at their rejection of the Messiah, they have lost protective favor of God. They have lost their unity. They're dispersed all over the world shortly after Jesus ascended. The third illustration is that Zechariah gives is that the people of Israel then turn to pay this shepherd. But what do they pay him? They pay him the insulting price of a servant's corpse, 30 pieces of silver. In other words, not only will they resist him, not only will they reject him, but they will also insult him by essentially making clear that he's valued no more than they would value the dead body of a servant. Well, just like the first two illustrations in this prophecy, Zechariah, this third illustration proved perfectly accurate. For the insulting price of 30 pieces of silver, Judas, one of Jesus' own men, part of the inner 12, betrayed Jesus. And you have this exchange. The price is paid. Jesus, the Son of God, this amazing, miracle-working, merciful, truth-preaching Word of God is arrested and tried falsely and crucified. Also, Judas could make, at best, 440 bucks. Well, we learn about this in this first part of Matthew 26. Matthew, as I said, had finished recording all the sayings, all these teachings of Jesus, the works of Jesus. Now it was time to give us the story of His arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. Matthew started the story with some context, really a a setup we just read, sort of a, a contextual setup to give us the story as he sets us up. 
he gives us these two followers. One, Judas, and one is Mary. Judas the betrayer, Mary the believer. And let's look at each one of these applications pretty easy as you look upon the crucified Christ. Which one are you, the believer or the betrayer? Who are these two disciples? Well, the first we're introduced is, is the betrayer, Judas. Verse 2 there, Jesus said, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, don't be troubled by the fact that Jesus says uh, after two days, it was Thursday he would be arrested on Friday. I mean, I'm sorry, it was Thursday he would be, uh, sorry, it was Wednesday he would be arrested on Thursday evening. That's one day by our count. A simple and historically substantiated explanation is that, believe it or not, first century Semites talked about time and days differently than we 21st century people do. So don't be troubled by the fact that it was only 24 hours from when he said this, and yet Jesus says two days, because they simply talked about days differently than we talk about days. Sometimes you have these skeptics that come to the Bible. They already have decided that the Bible is not true, and so they're trying to find proof, and they say something like, oh, look here, Jesus said two days when in fact it was one. Or as we'll see later, Jesus said he would rise after three days in the grave, and it's really more like two days in the grave. How do we answer skeptics like this? Well, for one thing, if all this is false, all this math is false, these people went to a lot of trouble to put this all together and then suddenly forget how to count. The other thing is, again, to ask this question, how did they talk about time and days back then that would make sense? And if you do a brief survey, what you find out is, first of all, they didn't think of day as a 24-hour period. That's what we think of a day as being, 24-hour period. So if I say in one day, let's go grab some coffee, you would think, well, tomorrow, about this time tomorrow, John and I are going to go get some coffee. No, they thought about days as simply sunrises, really sunup to sundown. Because of that, second thing they thought is when they numbered days, they always counted the day they were in. In other words, two sunshines. Two days, this one and tomorrow's sunshine. First century Jews wouldn't say, tomorrow I'm going to pick you up, or if they said tomorrow, they could also say something like, well, in two days, meaning in two sunshines. I'm going to come pick you up. Today's sunshine and tomorrow's sunshine. I'll be there to pick you up for coffee. Now, if you go by their language and their habits and their styles and the way they talked about days, what Jesus said is absolutely perfect. In fact, you'll notice that Jesus says, after two days, why? Because it was after sunset that he was arrested. And Jesus is actually being very precise. He's, he's not even giving some kind of random idea. It's very precise. It's, it's after two days. And Jesus is really setting up the scene. I'm done preaching. I'm done ministering. I'm done doing the miracles. I'm done traveling around the nation of Israel, having mercy on people, preaching truth. Now it's time for me to fulfill the ultimate reason I came. Tomorrow night, I'll be arrested, tried, and crucified. Matthew then, after Jesus says that, Matthew picks up the story. And he started with, of course, the false shepherds of Israel, these people plotting for Jesus' death, the chief priests, the elders, Caiaphas, 
who was the current chief priest. Of course, his father, Annas, was sort of the outgoing chief priest. They would still consider him a chief priest, much like we think about presidents. You still call them the president, even if they're not serving as a president. So you'll see later on, or you'll look in other gospels, and you'll see it referring to Annas as the chief priest, or Caiaphas as the chief priest. That, that is technically true. They were both chief priests. Caiaphas was the acting chief priest. His father, Annas, was on his way out. He was the former chief priest. Caiaphas is the only one Matthew mentions here. They go to Caiaphas' palace. Kind of tells you how these priests were living. Goes to his palace, and they began to plot how to have Jesus killed. And we see in this verse they're worried because Jesus has a lot of followers. We remember this. Even, even when he was up on the Temple Mount, and he was preaching that last week, and he was preaching, and they were a little bit afraid of him because so many people saw the inequity and the injustice that was happening, and these leaders were bilking them for money. The, the leaders were false leaders of Israel, and people were frustrated, and, and Jesus would preach, and, and they liked what Jesus, liked what they heard from Jesus, even if they didn't believe Him entirely. They at least liked the fact that He was coming against those leaders. And so the leaders, knowing that Jesus had a lot of followers, they were afraid. If we arrest Him in public, if we make a big stink about this, we might have our own heads on a pike. And so they were very careful to plot in such a way that they could arrest him secretly at night, Thursday evening, so they could get him in custody, begin the trial secretly again, have him crucified and down off the cross quickly before the Sabbath began. This was their plot. This was their plan. Like every devilish satanic scheme, though, they are unwittingly bringing perfect and beautiful fulfillment to the plan of God. We're going to see this next time. The Passover is that perfect picture of the blood of the Lamb as a covering the justice of God that they deserved. The seminal symbol of what the Messiah came to do was the Passover. And here they were celebrating Passover, and these false shepherds are so blind and so determined to kill Jesus, they miss the hole, and they can't even see it. Well, how did they carry out their wicked plan? To their happy surprise, an inside man showed up. A man came forward. They hired for the price of 30 pieces of silver, this inside man, a mole, a traitor, someone willing to turn on Jesus, someone who would betray Jesus according to their timeline that they wanted. And, of course, that was Judas. Verse 14, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Back up in verse 2. Verse 2 is after the Olivet Discourse. Judas, on the next day, Thursday, approached the priest. He snuck away, made that deal. It seems, according to 14, that he did this right after the incident when Mary anoints Jesus. I do want to say this. Matthew doesn't mention this, but I think it's implied Judas was the treasurer for the apostles and Jesus. He carried the money bag, and when Mary brought out the alabaster flask and anointed Jesus, it was Judas, according to John, who spoke up first. I think some other disciples agreed, the guys that were a little more uh, careful with their money, a little more stingy. Maybe Matthew was like that. He was a former tax collector, a money guy after all, and he saw this happen, and he he probably joined in after Judas says, and maybe that's why Matthew 
doesn't say anything, or he just says disciples because he didn't want to lay all the blame on Judas because though Judas started it, he, he and maybe some others joined in. But it began with Judas, this opposition to what Mary was doing. Again, maybe that was the reason, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, this adoration, this worship of Jesus. Judas had had enough of it. Judas was done with it. Judas was so sick of it at that point that he stole away and met with the chief priest. We'll touch on some of this more later as we go through Matthew, but what was the future of Judas? What happened after this? In verses, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 22 to 25, Jesus identified Judas as the betrayer in front of all the disciples. Judas ran off, notably before they took the Lord's Supper. He brought the authorities back to Gethsemane that night where he knew Jesus would be praying. He told them to arrest the guy whom I go up and greet with a kiss. In verses 47 to 50, he did just that. He gets Jesus arrested. Chapter 27, really the next day, Friday now, Jesus is going from fake trial to fake trial. Chapter 27, Judas gained a conscience. It's not a holy conscience. It's not a repentant, faith-filled conscience. It's a guilty conscience. It was not sorrow that led to repentance, but rather just the filth and depression of guilt with no forgiveness, brokenness with no reconciliation to God. So then, and that next day, while Jesus was being tried, Judas, now with this guilty conscience, ran back to the temple, tried to return his money. They wouldn't take it. He throws it at the chief priest, at the altar, and then he went and he hung himself. That's a story of Judas. I wrote down some things, truths really, that we can deduce from Judas and what he's done here. One thing I wrote down is this, is Judas deceived everyone, including himself. I think there was a time, I don't know that Judas, there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that Judas was plotting this from the beginning. In fact, it, if you just read the gospel for the first time ever, you're not going to, the gospel of Matthew, you're not going to know anything about Judas. This is a little bit of a shock to you. This would be a, a twist in the story that one of Jesus' own, one of the men that followed Jesus and worshipped Jesus and saw the miracles, he betrayed Jesus? It's a bit of a surprise. And I think early on, I think Judas probably deceived even himself. He wasn't a true follower. He didn't really have faith in Jesus. He just sort of got swept up in the emotion and the time and, and the other guys and all these people sort of followed along and he went along with it. He was a very trusted guy, obviously. So trusted that they said, here's the money bag. You know, my very first church, tiny little church, 15 people, and we had a gentleman, his name was Bob Hack. Bob was our money guy, and he did. We discovered this later as a small church. We didn't know this was illegal, but he would just do, collect the money from the people, and he would go to the bank later on that day, and he would count the money and make the deposit and do it all himself. Why did we let him do that? Well, he was trusted. He proved himself trustworthy. Through many, many years, he proved himself trustworthy. Well, they had enough trust and faith in Judas that they handed him the money bag. Hey, you keep the money. You be the one with the money. So he deceived people. He was, 
deceptive. Maybe even he deceived himself, maybe thinking he himself was a believer. But as time went on, it became clear in his own heart and to others that he wasn't. So that was another thing I wrote down, a truth about Judas, is that he grew colder and colder toward Jesus. He grew colder and colder to the worship of Jesus. As time went on, he got more and more irritated, agitated by all this fawning over Jesus and who He is and who He was and all the worship of Jesus. In fact, to the point when we get to this, this story, he's, he's so irritated and so irritable about the worship of Jesus. When a lady gives this worship of Jesus, he's the first one to speak up against it. And it prompts him to go and betray Jesus. You know, that's an important marker. Maybe you're asking the question, I wonder if I'm false. I wonder if I'm deceiving myself. Well, a good sign is, are you growing warmer and warmer to the things of Christ, or are you growing colder and colder? This man grew colder and colder to the point that he was outed as a deceiver, a betrayer. One more thing, one more truth I wrote about Judas, the betrayer. He never found peace. Judas never found peace. I don't know what he thought he would accomplish with that $440. I don't know why he thought that would bring him any level of joy. He took that $440 assuming that somehow this is going to bring a great amount of happiness to my life. But it didn't. It only brought guilt, so much guilt that he ended up killing himself. He never found peace. Well, Judas in this introduction, in this plot as it unfolds, stands in direct contrast to another disciple, and that's the believer, Mary. You look at this other disciple, she really dominates these first few verses of chapter 26. In the middle of all this plotting, in the middle of all this scheming, in the middle of all this satanic, horrifying thing that's going on, there's this beautiful example of a true believer. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table, at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. John said in his gospel that this is Mary, but we're not sure which Mary. There are several Marys in the Bible, even among those who were around Jesus. In fact, and this was a surprise to me as I studied this this week, in just the Gospels alone, there are 47 different mentions of Marys. A lot of Marys back then. What are some of our options? Well, of course, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's most likely not the Mary here, simply because... Usually, when it talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, it'll tell us this is the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, Jesus' mother. There was also Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala. You hear a lot about this Mary, a very prominent woman among the followers of Jesus, traveled around even with Jesus, was with the disciples. We saw her and some other ladies a lot, was perhaps even the main leading woman who followed Jesus. There's Mary of Clopas, who was probably the Mary who was identified as James the Lesser's mother. James, for lack of a better term, the greater, as in James and John, their mother is also probably 
named Mary. And then there's the Mary, the Mary who is the mother of John Mark. You learn about in the book of Mark, Mary, the mother of John Mark. Finally, there's the Mary of Bethany. This Mary was likely the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. And I think this is the one. Most people do say, look at this, believe this is the one. It makes sense that they're all there in Bethany. It makes sense that Mary and Martha and Lazarus would be there in that house. It paints a picture that maybe this was a well-to-do family. It was a, a large enough house that could, that could house all the disciples. They could sleep there. There was a, a large enough eating area that they could all dine around the table, all the disciples, perhaps even more. And Mary is there with her sister Martha and brother Lazarus. It said she brought an alabaster flask. That's the first sign that this was very valuable. Here they were in the, this well-to-do family, large house, all the disciples staying there, eating, fellowshipping these last few days. And this is the kind of family that would actually even own an alabaster flask. And in it is some very expensive oil. She brought out this beautiful vase and ceremoniously anointed the head of Jesus. Mark tells us that this flask and oil that was in it was worth as much as 300 denarii. Single denarius is, denarius is a day's work for a common laborer. So in today's money, you think about 15 bucks an hour. You'd be working 10-hour days, a common worker. So we're talking about $45,000. Even for very, very wealthy people, this would be extremely an extremely valuable treasure. I dare say there's any of us, or perhaps very few of us, that would have some kind of treasure worth that much in our homes. She comes, she pours this very expensive ointment on Jesus. Beginning with Judas, the disciples are astonished at this, and I would imagine now that you know the value of that, maybe some of you are too. Maybe some of you are saying, hey, I think I'm with Judas. Good luck with that. $45,000? That's a lot of money. That's a ton of money. Jesus, aware of this, verse 10, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now let's break down the words of Jesus. First of all, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing. And that's actually a great translation. The ESV got this one right. Other translations simply say she did a good thing. In the context here, this should be translated as beautiful. It is an act of worship. It is an act of sacrifice. It is an act of adoration. In fact, if you look back through in the, the Jewish people, their history, all the way back through the Old Testament, what you see is the moment of anointing when people are anointed, especially 
when they're anointed as a king or they're anointed for burial or they're anointed for some important task. This is a beautiful moment in the life of the people of Israel. She has done a beautiful thing. This is an act of worship, an act of sacrifice, demonstration of pure worship, Jesus said. What else did He say? He said, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In other words, she is redeeming the time. She is seeing something beyond the present. The rest of you, the rest of your life, you will have opportunities to help the poor. You have opportunities. And this sort of speaks to the fact that until Jesus returns, there will always be corrupt, corrupt governments, corrupt systems, people, drugs, social problems. These things will force people, maybe willingly, maybe unwillingly, into deep poverty. This reality calls upon all of us, just like we talked about last week, to, to give unto the least of these. All of us are called to do this, like we talked about last time. But Mary, Jesus said, is more mature. She sees beyond just what could be done and what could be done the rest of her life. She sees something, a moment, seizes that moment to worship Christ. Why does she do this? Verse 12, and pouring this ointment on my body... She has done it to prepare me for burial. You follow this? Jesus had said over and over, I'm going to die. I'm going to be arrested, tried, and killed. And she simply, simply believed him. She didn't resist this. I mean, a few verses later, we find out Peter is, is resisting this. No, I'm not going to let that happen. She believed it, and there's something in her that believed it was necessary. It was part of Jesus' ministry to the human race to, to be killed. Somehow, she understood this was necessary, this is important, and I, and I need to, to value Christ for what He's about to do. Verse 13, that belief, that beautiful act of worship is what she is now famous for. And here we are, literally on the other side of the world, talking about the faith and belief and worship of Mary. There in that room, you had doubters, you had deniers, you had a betrayer. But here is this humble lady beautifully demonstrating her belief in Jesus and worship of Him. We learn from Judas the betrayer, what truths can we learn about Mary? One thing is this, worshiping Christ is her sole and final objective. She wants to glorify Christ. While Judas was growing more and more weary of the worship of Christ, she was growing more and more desirous to worship Christ. She wanted to give more. She wanted to sacrifice more. She wanted to spend more time. She wanted to do more radical things in the honor of Jesus Christ. She was willing to give up friends and family and money. She was willing to sacrifice for the sake of the glory of Christ. Another thing that we know simply by the fact that there's not a lot of doctrine yet that had been given, at least on paper. Her faith was simple. She had some very simple, basic ideas. What did she believe? She believed she needed a Savior. She needed a Savior. Much like the Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she prays in Luke chapter 1, to God, her Savior. She realized she's a sinner. She needs a Savior. 
Another simple aspect of what she believed is that Jesus was that Savior. Jesus is whom He said He was. He's God incarnate. He, would live a, he lived a perfect life, that He came to die an atoning death. She believed, we assume, she had believed that He would rise again, just as He said over and over in His ministry, that He would rise again. She believed this. Doing this, this anointing, this worship, pointed out this very simple belief. And you could say this is really another element of what she did in terms of her simple faith was that she was willing to do things publicly. She made essentially a public confession of her faith. It was very simple, but it was worshipful and it was true. So worshiping Christ was her final objective. Her faith was simple. And the third thing we learn about her is that her faith has and will inspire many to follow. This is what Jesus points out. Wherever the gospel is going to go, the story of this lady will go. The sacrificial faith an example to all of us. Well, that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for you. That we would be like Mary, cling to and believe the truth that God has given us, even if it's very simple at this point, and follow Jesus by worshiping Him. Let's pray for that right now. Father, we thank You for all that You've given us. We thank You for this wonderful example of Mary in the midst of all this scheming and plotting and darkness and death, in the midst of all these horrible circumstances, and, and even in the midst of a bunch of doubt from a lot of people who are supposed to believe in Christ, these disciples who were still doubting, and one of them would deny and one of them would betray, she stands out as an example to us all. Lord, may we have this kind of simple faith. May we acknowledge our need of a Savior. May we believe that Jesus indeed is that Savior. And may we profess that. Inspire in us a desire to worship Christ more and more throughout our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to ask you just to stay seated. Pastor Ryan has something he wants to speak with you about, but I am going to give a benediction. So let me give the benediction, and then uh, I'll ask Pastor Ryan to come up. May we go from this place inspired and instructed by our ancient sister Mary to love and believe and worship our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints who have ever lived and who ever will live.